0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's Wednesday, June 21st, 2017, from Slate It's the Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Karen Handel is now the representative of Georgia's 6th congressional district. She beat John Ossoff, who, this time yesterday, was the Democrats' youthful, whip smart, enthusiastic hope. And today, he is an out-of-district stiff who was a squish on all the important issues. Okay, got it. Democrats had their hopes up. Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump by just one and a half points in that district. Handel beat Ossoff by almost four. So glass ceiling, take that! This is my fight song. No, wait, hold on. Hold on. Not appropriate. Wait, explain. Okay, fine. Can we stop the song? Actually, can we stop the song with a record scratch? This is my fight song. <laughs> okay, I love that. Thank you. The danger is that this result will be overinterpreted as meaning that Democrats can't get it done anywhere. Though all the smart election people that I follow on Twitter Amy Walter, Harry Enton, Lynn Vavrick, Philip Bump, Jared Bernstein, all your Nates, all your data Nates, Nate Cohn, Nate Silva, all the data Nates, they all say the same thing. Don't overinterpret one result. And remember also that in South Carolina, there was a race where the Democrats were even bigger underdogs and they did better than in Georgia. Still, we're told there's going to be this mass overreaction. Well, yeah, of course there will. It's 2017. Everything political engenders an overreaction, an underreaction, and an allergic reaction. But it's curious to think about who are the masses of people who are going to have this mass overreaction? Are they the people who really care about politics, say the people who read the data nates? No, they're not going to have an overreaction. They read the data nates. Are they the people who don't follow politics at all except for the last minute? No, they're not really following politics at all. Who are the people who care enough to care but not enough to care to listen to smart political coverage? It's not no one. It's a decent percent of people. But is it mass? I'll tell you who the real mass is. This is the real mass of every off-year or special election I've ever heard of. The real mass is indifference. There are over 700,000 people per congressional district. These are just people in the district. They don't have to be citizens. Some are 18, so a lot of them can't vote. But most can if they wanted to. And this the special election had a really big turnout. You ready? It was 260,000. So that means there were 450,000 people not voting. Some of them couldn't, but at least half of those are eligible. The special election in April that prompted this runoff got 192,000. In 2016, the presidential year, 326,000 voted in this district. And so the last off-year election at 210,000. It did a lot better than that, even a regular November election. Still, still, $55 million was spent on the 260,000 voters in this election. It's over 200 bucks per voter. Of course, if turnout were up, like I advocate, that would be less per voter. But 200 bucks per voter, that is a crazy high figure, right? But also you and me and everyone that we read or know, all the data nates would personally pay $200 to get the result they wanted. I wonder how many actual voters in Georgia's sixth think they will get $200 worth of governance over the next 190 days. We don't know exactly when Handel will be sworn in, could be 190, could be 195, but you know, she's going to have to run again in November 2018. But is it worth it is $200 worth it for your representative in Congress for the next 200 or so days? I mean, maybe this vote will embolden the GOP to go full bore on their healthcare overhaul. We've heard that. Maybe it will signal to the Dems that they got to dump Pelosi. That'd be worth $200 one way or another. But I wonder if the $200 will really, really be a value to the voters of the 6th. On the show today, I spiel about Uber, bad for women, potentially catastrophic for men. But first, Wallace Shawn is an actor, director, playwright, and essayist. His new work is called Night Thoughts. Now, he works mostly in prose, having eschewed verse since
0: 1987. No more rhymes now, I mean it!
1: Please praise our conversation, don't demean it. Wallace Shawn is an essayist and a playwright, and he contemplates our existence in such plays and movies as the designated mourner. He's also Rex from Toy Story, the lovable dinosaur with the arms that are too short. But his new work is called Night Thoughts, and it starts off uh, disparate observations about maybe looking out a hotel or a series of places he stayed. And then it turns into a fairly long, sustained essay, essentially about life in the present Comparing the lucky to the unlucky, weaves in elements of uh, contemplation about Islamic terrorism. Wallace Shawn is here. Hello, thank you for coming in.
0: Great to be here. Do you wake up in the middle of the night thinking things usually? When I wake up in the middle of the night, I I tend more usually to be thinking about myself. Uh huh. Yeah, in the middle of the night, I probably worry about. Unanswered emails suddenly loom up in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. Things I've forgotten. People I've forgotten.
1: Do you, as a writer, as a thinker, are you a jotter? Is that your method? Uh, as you go about, do you take notes? Um, or, or do you wait to sit in front of a whatever it is, computer or typewriter, and wait for it to flow out of you?
0: I do occasionally. I wouldn't say notes because I wouldn't be able to understand my notes. But I write a page or or a paragraph occasionally when I think, oh my God, I have an insight into something. 99% of my insights are, oh, that's what Bob said yesterday, or that's what I read yesterday, so I don't write those down. But occasionally I think, wait a minute, I haven't heard that from anybody, so I'm going to write it down because I'll forget it.
1: There's a fine line between the insights that are realizing something and the insights that are synthesis. Uh, You could just be realizing something someone told you, but what if the thing you're realizing is you've connected two strands of tissues and you've realized, oh, this policy that's going on in France, this relates to a psychological uh, insight or a psychological thing that I know. And look, I've put them together and I've told you something about why the French have a policy about hijabs, for instance.
0: I think that is what thinking is, really, yeah, it's yeah. is putting two things together. A lot of what goes on in the world that you hear about is so crude and obvious that it's very hard to think of anything worthwhile to say about it. I mean, when the Bush administration tortured people, or when Trump takes the United States out of the climate treaty, there's only a certain amount that you could say, but that's horrible. Torturing people is wrong. Destroying the entire planet is not a good thing to do. At a certain point, you feel, well... You know, I said that, and my friends said that, and, and everybody has said that, so it's almost not helpful to say okay. it again. Yeah. But maybe if I could think of a, of what it really is that bothers me about torture or about the destruction of the entire planet, it might turn out to be something different from what other people have said, and it might be worth saying. A lot of your work is set
1: in um an unnamed dystopia. <laughs> this is this is not it's a named dystopia. It's the present. It's the real world. But what do you get from setting a work in a place that's not quite our own and that's not quite the timeline we're quite living in?
0: I suppose I get to make up the the rules of the world. Well, all my plays except for one have no named uh, setting. They're dream plays, really, a category Strindberg, I guess, invented in in so many words, but uh, they're made-up worlds that a guy who lives today dreamed. I'm not an expert on the real world. I've lived a sheltered life. I haven't met that many people. I don't haven't done the type of uh, research that would be necessary really to write a play about Kansas City. Yeah. Or even about New York City. I suppose I I know a little bit about uh, certain elite circles in New York City and I could try to write about them, but I don't think that's my strong suit. I think I do better creating an imaginary world and People who might, I think, remind you of yeah. people who you've really met. Because
1: the main thing you want to do is spark the ideas. And if you were to set something in Kansas City or Oslo or New York, you'd have too much fealty to those actual places. Would get in the way of your true intention,
0: which is to talk about the ideas. I mean, I write a lot about human psychology. Yes. And I also play with the audience quite a bit. Even as an actor, I'm rarely cast as a real human being because the producers know that I may not know that much about it. Uh, The type of criticism that someone would say, well, in your portrait of Manhattan, you have a guy wearing a button-down blue cashmere sweater getting onto the number three subway. Well, I don't that many people with that kind of sweater would get on that subway. (laughs) And what I write, you know, you can't catch me in that criticism.
1: Doesn't my dinner with Andre start with a shot of you in a really nice suit getting onto a subway? Isn't that one of the earliest shots?
0: Uh, no, I'm not in a really nice suit. Oh, okay. But, uh, <laughs> what are you
1: wearing in that? Uh, I remember the subway was unbelievably graffitied.
0: Yes. Well, today it seems amazingly... It's a relic. I just got back from uh, Frankfurt, Germany, and downtown L.A., both of which had so much more graffiti than New York. Yeah. I, I find that... Strange, And it's funny when people try to do a representation of
1: New York, it's always with the graffiti. That's a big signifier, but there's no graffiti anymore. It's a non-New Yorker's idea of New York.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's very beautiful graffiti in Germany and in downtown LA. Mm-hmm. And when I came home to New York, I was shocked. I think I wear some kind of a corduroy suit in my dinner with Andre that is not a beautiful work of art. Oh, okay. I liked it. <laughs>
1: I thought it was in keeping with the character. Have you watched all the movies you're
0: in? No, I've watched a lot of them. I mean, there's some people who act who don't like to see their own performances, but I usually enjoy it, although sometimes I'm disappointed. Sometimes I think the editor has been unfair to me or even the cameraman. And sometimes I think I maybe I didn't do a good job but uh, usually i kind of enjoy it are you anxious you mean personally i i have a complacent personality we have absolutely every reason to be very anxious and i'm to the extent that i'm complacent i'm upset about it and want to somehow puncture that complacency complacency partly comes if you don't know what exactly you should do. But I do think that Trump is, uh, I mean, I think we were in desperate trouble before Trump. And I think I don't share the feelings of uh, those less left-wing people for whom this is uh, an unimaginable shock. I think Trump is actually just the more outward expression of the American. Empire, as it has been experienced by the people who are underneath it, I don't think America under Trump feels different to an Iraqi or a Salvadoran uh, than America has felt for decades. You know, and I'll admit it, I'm I'm more shocked by the mockery of law and constitutionalism than I would have thought I would be as a sort of card-carrying leftist. I find myself howling at things that uh, I wouldn't have thought I would howl at. And I do do think that it's- uh, Meaning that
1: you can't even believe how far he's gone. He's put things on the table that you put past even, you know, the worst of the troglodytes of his ilk.
0: Well, I I also am surprised that I care so much about things like the law, the Constitution. I'm not a patriotic American, and uh, I have a cynical attitude when people talk about, you know, those things often. But I, in response to uh, Trump, I see that buried within myself, there's a, there's a stronger affection for the law and the Constitution than I would have expected, even though I know that law a lot of the time ratifies an oppressive status quo that hurts a lot of people.
1: A couple of weeks ago, Nancy Pelosi was on one of the Sunday shows and she made a reference, uh, a mistaken reference to George W. Bush. And she said, oh, President Bush, if only I never thought I'd be saying that. You ever since you've written about the excesses of George Bush and torture and Donald Rumsfeld do you ever feel yourself having a moment actually pining for George W Bush
0: Well I haven't uh, felt that but uh, <laughs> yes I I do think if you want to think about his good points he there was a limit to his what he would do caused by the fact that he he was a sort of modest human being I mean I don't think that he believed himself to be the greatest, smartest person who ever lived. I think he had a kind of uh, rather appealing humility about himself. Yeah. And that maybe set a limit to what he would dare to do. You know, if someone said to him, well, you know, 195 other world leaders believe in this pact— Everyone but
1: Syria and Nicaragua.
0: Yeah, well, Nicaragua because th- they didn't it think didn't it go far, far enough. enough. Yeah,
1: that's funny.
0: I think Bush would have sort of thought, well, gosh, who am I? These 195 people, some of them are quite smart. Am I really smarter than all of them? Maybe they've got a point. It's an amazing thing that Trump thought about it. And I don't know if he was affected. Some people have said that he was by going and meeting some of those people. Yeah. And they didn't show the respect for him that he wanted them to.
1: Shook his hand extra hard.
0: (laughs) I think they, you know, he wanted them to uh, express the kind of admiration for him that some of the Saudis expressed. Yeah. And uh, they didn't do that. Maybe that emboldened him. I don't know. That may or may not be true. But it takes a lot of hubris to say, well, those 195 people are idiots, and I'm going to go against them. Bush probably wouldn't have done that. What are you optimistic about? Well, optimistic and pessimistic are like predictions about the future, and I don't think I can I mean, I I can't predict, Pe- people can't even predict the weather next week, even on the same day they can't predict the weather. You know, optimistic, I don't know. Obviously, well, I recently had the opportunity to be on the other side of the table. I interviewed Noam Chomsky when we discussed the election. He seemed to be expressing the idea that the fact that Trump was elected was actually only the second most remarkable thing about the election, the most remarkable thing being the, the Bernie Sanders movement and the existence of all of these supporters of Bernie Sanders. So that was amazing. I mean, I mean my generation, I was born in 1943, my generation was not materialistic and was dreaming of a better world. Then there have been a few generations where people were dreaming of money and the self and and success for the self. We seem to have another generation that is very into trying to create a better world, maybe because they have a genuine personal fear of uh, being uh, asphyxiated, which in a way I don't have because I am picturing myself being dead (laughs) by twenty forty or whatever you know we're speaking about. Although in the book I refer to hurricane that took place in New York, which affected me personally and which disturbed me way beyond what would be rational. Yeah.
1: You're out you're out of power, you're out of water, but it went way beyond that.
0: I mean, in other words, I had a reaction that clearly was based on my knowledge that this was not an isolated episode, but that this was the future for the planet, because I totally freaked out. You know, it was trivial in itself.
1: It wasn't even a hurricane, right? It was a superstorm. Yeah, right. Yeah. By the way, as you mentioned, Noam Chomsky, as I'm talking to you, and I've heard you, I've seen you interview, and I've heard you in uh, interviews on Leonard Lopate, the thought that came to me was, Huh, Noam Chomsky plus Mel Blanc plus Berthold Brecht, something like that. (laughs) That's the impression I'm getting.
0: Yeah, those are my influences. (laughs) I mean, in other words, uh, for some reason, my early childhood influences, Mel Blanc or other people in the cartoon world, uh, I guess, stuck with me more than they do a lot of people. Maybe Chomsky himself was fascinated by Walt Disney comic books when he was eight years old. I kind of doubt it.
1: No, I see him more as a roadrunner guy.
0: You know, I don't know. I mean, obviously that side of my interests was never dropped, really. I haven't dropped that many interests that I've had in my life.
1: Well, Sean is the author of Night Thoughts. Great to meet you.
0: Great to meet you. Thank you so much. That was excellent.
1: And now the spiel. The head of Uber, Travis Kalanick, has resigned. Kalanick at one time held the second highest score in Wii Tennis and at another time screamed at the lowest ranking driver in his $70 billion company, quote, some people don't like to take responsibility for their own shit. Kalanick was enormously talented, he was driven, he was visionary, and it would seem he was something of an asshole, especially to women. Or maybe he was just indifferent to the feelings and experiences of most of his employees, and that attitude showed up most in the way women were made to feel at Uber. Sexism in the workplace is, of course, an evil. Sexism in society is bad. It's especially disheartening to see it run so rampant in Silicon Valley the supposed hub of visionaries who are reshaping our entire society, whether we analog-type dullards like it or not. But with all that out there, I had this slightly different thought about Kalanick, Uber, the tech world, sexism. It's an idea I'm going to put out there. I'm going to tell you what I was thinking. I can see the downsides of it. I don't even subscribe completely to the idea, but it is an interesting thought. I think it's a fair thought. Here it goes. What the Kalanick ouster represents... Is not just the perhaps temporary corrective to their problem of sexism. It also represents a referendum on societal values. Who has the agency to change the course of a powerful corporation with nearly limitless resources and momentum? Because Uber employees, I'm talking actual employees, not drivers, not the contractors, they employ, as of their recent diversity filings, I counted, 1,630 women. The vast majority do not work in tech, which is the driver of this driving service. They're overwhelmingly not in the executive suites, and only one is on the board, though Ariana Huffington is not an employee. When one of these women went public a little while ago, she brought needed attention to the problem She improved the lives of these 1,630 women and presumably laid the foundation for hiring many more women who will experience a business that is more hospitable to them. These 1,630 women and the hundreds or, you know, thousands more that will come will work with the now over 4,000 male employees of Uber. This is a business whose goal, whose aim, and whose future is the elimination of the jobs of millions of American men. Here is Vivek Wadhwa on the Financial Times podcast. Uber is literally obsessed with removing the dude in the driver's seat. They believe that they can reduce the cost of cars dramatically by removing the driver from it. And they won't have these pesky people who join labor unions and who give them a hard time. So this is why Uber is investing massively in self-driving cars. And this is why they're going to be one of the first to get these out. So give it three or four or five years at the most, worst case, five years, most likely three years. And we will start rolling out fleets of cars that can drive themselves. Truck drivers' jobs will disappear as well. We're talking about millions of jobs disappearing. What happens then to these people? They're not employable because you can't simply retrain them now to do some other high-level work. Goldman Sachs, two months ago, put out its estimates of how driverless cars will affect the U.S. economy. They say that when autonomous vehicle saturation peaks, U.S. drivers could lose 25,000 jobs a month, 300,000 jobs a year. There are 4 million professional drivers in the U.S. Three-quarters of them are truck drivers, not cabbies. But it doesn't mean Uber is in any way off the hook for those future losses either because Uber launched Uber Freight a couple months ago all about self-driving trucks, they're intent on dominating this burgeoning industry as well. They're at the forefront of pushing that technology, which is currently in an intense fight with Google over who has the right to the driverless car technology, who has the right to put 4 million men, because drivers are almost entirely men, 4 million males out of work. So it is good and proper and necessary that the women who work for Uber are not harassed. This is a little like the women who work for fox they shouldn't be harassed by bill o'reilly or roger Ailes. they shouldn't have harassment get in the way of their going on the air and saying of muslims in america quote you solve it with a bullet to the head it's the only thing these people understand we're saying that eric holder was running the doj like the black panthers or that taking in muslim refugees is suicide i'm not being glib women shouldn't be harassed in the workplace but andrea tentaros did say all those things and was using her workplace to say that. And let's face it, everyone who works for Uber is working for a company that will one day put millions and millions of men on unemployment. The company worked its way into American culture, but what's the resignation say about workplace culture? Perhaps the only thing worse than being forced to endure a hostile workplace is having no workplace at all. Well, why can't we have both? Is it too much to ask that we have jobs, and in those jobs we're not harassed? Is that an impossible dream in 2017? No, it's not impossible. And, you know, as I said, the entire argument I laid out, I think, has some obvious rebuttals. Like, it is not the job of progress to throw on brakes. Uber is a brilliant technology and improves the lives of many people. Also, the government shouldn't be a jobs program for inefficient industries. Also, I have the Uber app on my phone and I use it. I only installed Lyft last week because of this Kalanick stuff. I'll allow all that. But I do think a lot about politics and our political discussion, how we say, you know, Democrats have to have a better message, a message, some combination of words. What's your message for this? What's the plan? Being against harassment, I mean, that's not easy. Especially if you look at history, it was a struggle to get here. Correcting harassment isn't painless. But now, fair-minded people have come to a consensus that it shouldn't take place. I see the roadmap of where we go from here. But automation and the decimation of male work... There's no boogeyman named Travis for that one. What's the roadmap for our driverless future? And that's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Berube does not watch his own movies. Just producer Mary Wilson also does not watch Chris Berube's own movies. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He has not experienced much George W. Bush nostalgia except for the time when he danced with the Kankorin West African Dance Company. <laughs> that was gold. The gist trying to put names on all the unnamed dystopias is Paramus Taken. Peru do duperu, and thanks for listening.